We welcome you to our Bible study as the radio Bible class streams across the nation and around the world. We bring to you a message how Christ ministers to his disciples after the resurrection. We greet you on the internet and radio with the message that Jesus is alive today. Now today's lesson is titled, Learn from Your Past, and it comes from Hosea chapter 12 and 13. If you'd like to hear a previous lesson, you can listen online at our Facebook page. That's www.facebook.com slash radio Bible class with no spaces between radio Bible class. Again, that's www.facebook.com slash radio Bible class with no spaces. Now, Christian Radio is not free. If you enjoy this radio ministry, your offering to this ministry will aid in the expense of keeping the radio Bible class on the air as a witness for Jesus. By making a charitable contribution, you're helping reach people listening in our area and on the internet. You can make a donation safely and securely by calling us at 601-483-8648. And there they can take your information over the phone. Or send us your gift to Word Talk, Inc., P.O. Box 4334, Meridian, Mississippi 39304. Your gift to Word Talk, Inc. is IRS approved as a 501c3 tax-exempt ministry. Hebrews 13, 16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. If you're a regular listener, you know that we've been journeying through the book of Hosea, and we're coming to the end. We're only a couple of lessons away. And I hope you have enjoyed this book as much as I have. Through our study, we've seen God's tough love for his people. He has warned his people. He's been long-suffering. He's been patient. And in all this, his people, the Israelites, have said it's no big deal, and they've ignored God's warning. God loved them so much, and he loves us that much, too, that he warned them as they got off their path, but he relentlessly pursued them, even though they were chasing after other gods. Now today, in these two chapters, and these two chapters go together, God has taken Israel down memory lane. He wants Israel to look back and learn from their past. And that's why I titled this, Learn From Your Past. If you listened to last week's lesson, you saw this oasis that we came to. And we saw how God is a tender-hearted God. How God is also a broken-hearted God. We saw how God is a merciful God. And what was most powerful to me at the end, that God is a lion-hearted God. He's not some wimp. Even though he gives us mercy and grace, he's not some wimpy God. But today we see a different conversation from God, and this is where he reminds Israel of their past, and he does that through three people. Now God's people, the Israelites, looked at their past in a different way than what God is going to show them today. You know, that's kind of the way it is today. We look back in our past and we remember things, we remember the good things, we remember how good it was. You know, I grew up in the 80s, and, you know, in the 80s, we had things like rock bands that, you know, the hair bands. You know, we had Michael Jackson. We had Weird Al Yankovic. We had a lot of good stuff, or at least that's how we remember it. Another big thing that came out in the 80s was MTV and music videos. And I can remember watching music videos way into the wee hours of the night and thinking, wow, this is so cool. This is so great. Now fast forward to where we are today. We have this thing called YouTube. And so as you know, I like to do occasionally, I think about something or something runs through my mind. You know, Some of these songs that I thought were so cool. I'll go to YouTube and I'll, and I'll go search for them. I find them and I'll watch that same video and I go, really? And I thought that was so good. I thought that was 
so cool and neat back then. What was I thinking? Now, don't get me wrong, I still like the songs, but the way the bands dressed, the way they portrayed the story in the video, the morals that they had, they were all bad. They weren't good. But again, it just goes to show you that our fond memories sometimes fool us of what we think about the past. And Israel is doing the same thing. They're saying back in the day, and they're remembering certain people about their past. You know, as they think about the past, they've probably embellished of all the good things that happened, and they've forgotten about the bad. But today, God says, let me remind you about some of the bad things. Trying to cover two chapters today is going to take a lot of time, so let me just jump right in. So let's look at the first six verses of chapter 12, and I'll be reading from the ESV. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehoods and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and the oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought for his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord in his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. As Christians, we should always understand that our past does not define us. Now, it does mold and shape us, though. Most people look back to their past, and they remember the good things, and they forget the bad. And some folks have such a bad past, or such a painful past, that they suppress it. A wise person, though, always looks back to their past, and they learn from it. They don't want to make the same mistakes that they made before. Sadly, Israel hasn't learned this principle. As a matter of fact, I told you last week and the week before that about Moses telling them 27 times, remember, remember. He told them, if you will honor God's covenant and obey it, then you will be blessed. But if you disobey God's covenant, you will go back into exile, and that's where we are. That's where Israel is headed, back into exile with Assyria. We see right here in verse 1 that God calls them out. God asks them, where is your trust? Because of where they put their trust, they're about to go back into exile. They're going to go back into Assyria where the king is going to come and take them out of their promised land. And we see right here, he says, Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They make covenants with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. So what he's saying here is that they've put their trust in man. They didn't look to me. They tried to buy themselves out of a problem. They've tried to spend money. They've tried to spend goods to get themselves out of a problem. Now, if you look at the very beginning of verse 1, he says, feeds on the wind. And when you look at that phrase, that's really code to say that you're chasing after something that is really nothing. Think about it. You can't see the wind. We can hear the wind. We can feel the wind. But you can't see the wind. And so what happens is if we chase after the wind, we're always going to lose. We're never going to be able to catch it. So God is telling them, you've put your trust in man. You've chased after the wind. In other words, you've chased after things that really aren't going to make a difference. You've relied on your own knowledge and not God's knowledge. You've gone to your ways, not God's way. And now you are going into exile. Assyria is going to come in and take you out. 
They're going to carry you away out of the promised land that I gave you. And you've tried to cover this by also making a deal with Egypt by giving them oil. But sadly, you've chased after the wind. I think we can learn from this. God is asking us, what are you pursuing today that is worthless? What winds are you chasing after? Now, in verse 2, God starts bringing back the past and showing them the things that they don't remember about the past. Look at verse 2 where he says, The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his past or to his ways. So the first person that God uses to let them see their past and the bad part of their past is Jacob. And really the question he's asking them is, What are you doing to deceive yourself? Are you deceiving yourself? So he brings up Jacob and his past. And why would he do that? Because Jacob was known as the deceiver or heel catcher. When Jacob was born, he grabbed his brother's heel as he was coming out. And so he was called Jacob because he was a heel catcher or a deceiver. And that's what it means. Now, if you know your Old Testament, especially Genesis, then you know that Jacob lived up to this name. He stole his brother's birthright by holding him hostage over a pot of stew, and he cheated him out of his blessing from his father. So Jacob was a deceiver. Now God changes his name at Bethel, but Jacob was a deceiver. So God is telling Israel that you guys are a bunch of deceivers. You're morally bankrupt. You're lying. You're lying to yourself. You're deceiving yourself. You're a bunch of deceivers. You're a bunch of Jacobs. Now look at verse 3 with me. It says, in the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. So we know about him being in his birth, grabbing his brother heel, and that's how he got the name Jacob. But also, he always, after he stole his brother's uh, blessing from his father, he had to run for his life. He had to run to his uncle Laban's house. And as you know, there he met his match. He was tricked out of his future wife that he loved so much at first sight. His uncle Laban was a trickster as well. He had to work 14 years for that wife that he wanted because after working the first seven as promised, he gave the older daughter to him. Now, it wasn't like a normal wedding where someone comes down the aisle. There was a big party, and then you would go into the tent, and it says that he realized he went back to Laban. Laban says, I can't let my youngest daughter be married first. Worked for me seven more years, so he had to work 14 years. Then he stole all his wages from him. If you read about this, you'll hear about how he, he tricked him out of his goats and his sheep that he was working for and how he would get paid. Everything that he had stole from Esau back home, his uncle Laban took from him. But even through all this, God was with him and he blessed him. And eventually we see Jacob leaves. He runs. He takes his family. He doesn't tell Laban he's leaving. He had to leave that land to quit being tricked by the trickster just like him. Now, we also know that he's named Jacob, and eventually he's, God gives him a new name, and that name's Israel. At Bethel, where he you know, strives with God, God gives him the name Israel. And that's what Israel means. It means strive with God. An interesting fact that I learned when I was in Bible school is Jacob is the only person that we know in Scripture that wrestles with God and winds up winning. So Jacob was a person that deceived and strove with God. And out of Jacob came the 12 tribes and the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel is known as one who strives with God. 
What he's saying here is that you guys have gone from being a nation that walks with God, one that strives with God, to being one now that tries to deceive God, one that is being deceived, one that is a trickster. But even through all of the tricksters, God has always been with Jacob, and he's still with Israel. And we see that. Look at verses 4 through 6. And he strove with the angel and prevailed, and he wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel. Now, if you remember, he met God, and we know that as Jacob's ladder. And that's where he saw him there. And there God spoke with us, the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord in his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to the love and justice, and wait continually for your God. So God promised Jacob, now Israel, at Bethel, that he would make Israel a great nation. He would make him the father of a great nation. And we know that comes to pass. But listen to what God also told him in Genesis 28:15, where this happens. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God tells him not only would he be the father of a, a mighty nation, but he will always be with him until he's done what he's promised. And that should encourage us today that God will be with us no matter what. He will never leave us and forsake us. Even when we're in our trickster mode, God loves us and he will not leave us and forsake us. We can't separate God's love from us. There's nothing that can separate God's love. Hopefully you realize that God made this promise to him before he ever went to see his Uncle Laban. Before he got tricked. Before he was, you know, had to work those 14 years, God promised him. And God delivered. When we accept God into our life, we should know that God is with us. He's always with us. I know when we're in the middle of the storm, there's dark clouds. It doesn't seem like the sun is shining on us like he has in the past. But the sun is still shining. He's there. He's with us. And so if we look down at verse 6, Hosea says the same thing to the people of Israel that God said to Jacob. And that was, Hold fast to the love and the justice and wait continually for God. And he will lay out that path. He will deliver his promises. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord in his memorial name. We're to hold fast. God is there with us. And that's what Hosea is telling Israel. God will be with you if you will just turn back to him. If you'll just walk in his wisdom. If you'll seek his guidance instead of trying to do it all in your own strength. So Jacob was the first person that God wanted to remind Israel of their past. The second person is Moses. Look with me down in verse 13. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet, he was guarded. Now we know that here Hosea is calling uh, Moses a prophet because the only person that brought Israel out of Egypt was Moses. Well, you might ask, Tim, why is God doing this? Is there something bad in Moses' past? Well, not that he's going to bring up here. He's doing this because Israel had this mighty prophet that did amazing things while they were out in the desert and getting them to the promised land, and they still rejected him. All the works that they saw, how he guided them, how he fed them, and yet they rejected him. Now look back up at verse 7 and 8 with me, and look what he says. A merchant in whose land are false balances he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, Ah, oh, but I'm rich. I have found wealth for myself, and all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. 
the Canaanites that they do business with had scales that were not in balance. They were cheating them. What did the nation of Israel do? Oh, that's no big deal. I have lots of money. I have my own wealth. I am rich, so it's no big deal. I don't care. See, here we see that, again, that they put trust in themselves. They're thinking too highly of themselves. They believe that these blessings will continue and continue, and it's no big deal. They say, you're pointing out these sins against me? Ah, uh, no, it can't be. I'm successful. I'm rich. God wouldn't bless me if I was in sin. And we see that a lot today. People are successful. People have money. And so therefore, they equate that, that God is happy with where they're at. Let me tell you that if you are not serving the Lord, if he is not the number one in your life, if he does not have all your heart, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much happiness money brings you. Think it's all you and that you're in good favor, yet you're living in sin, then you're fooling yourself. And that's what Israel is doing right here. They're fooling themselves because they say, in all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Now, this is not the only place we see this in the Bible. If you go look in Revelation, there's a church, Laodicea, that has this same problem. Laodicea was the financial capital of that area. They were known for this medicine that people would travel from all over the world to come and get. It was this eye medicine. Even at one point, the whole city of Laodicea was destroyed by earthquake. And Rome sends over these soldiers and they ask, we're here to help you. And they are, no, we got this. We'll rebuild. We, have, we can do it ourselves. They were extremely wealthy and they had their faith in their wealth. But listen to what John wrote in Revelations 3.17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Our financial success means that God has blessed us but it does not mean that we are not living in sin, that we do not have sin, and we need to be careful that we don't see it as something we did, but we always look and give God the glory for it. Be careful never to fool yourself or deceive yourself by your financial blessing that you have no sin or no fault. But listen how God responds to him. Look at verse 9. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. God tells them, go ahead and put your faith in your money, and I'll send you back to put you in tents, just like you were when you came out of Egypt. I've blessed you with that money, and I can also take that money away from you. As fast as you got your money, I can take that money away. You'll be back in the wilderness praying for me to send you manna. You'll be praying back to me. It's so easy to become self-reliant, to look to self when God blesses us. See, I pray every day, Lord, let me need you just as much in the good times as the bad. See, a lot of times we reach out to God when things get really tough and bad, but when things are good, we kind of put God in a box, we put him on the shelf. And God is telling Israel right here, yeah, you may have blessings, you may have riches, but I can take it from you just as fast as I gave it to you. Now look at chapter 13, verse 1 with me, because there's another issue that about to be addressed. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. Other translations say he exalted himself in Israel, and that was the problem here. They were exalting themselves. 
And then he goes on in verse 2, And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifices kiss calves. Now here's the trap when you think too much of yourself, because some of you are sitting there going, well, hey, I don't have money, so I don't have that problem. But let me tell you what, this isn't just a money thing. It can easily get to the point where we just think too highly of ourselves, that we think we are better than others. I go to church every Sunday. I read my Bible regularly. I do, I'm not divorced. And we look down on folks that sin. And see, that's not how God looked at us. God looked at us with love and compassion because guess what? We were just like them. Yet we may be saved by grace today. But we can't think too much of ourselves, just like Israel is doing here, taking pride in their past, even though they were sinful and God's trying to teach them. Look at your past. Learn from it. You were just like that. You, you are in sin just like they're in sin. And we sin even though we know God. God forgives us that with his mercy and grace. But look, we're not better than anyone. It doesn't matter if we got money or not money. It doesn't matter how many educations, how many degrees we have. We're not better than anyone. Look back at verse 2 with me, and look what it says. Because they thought so much of themselves, they sin more and more. The problem we have is when we think highly of ourselves, we put ourselves on a pedestal. And that pedestal is where God should be, not us. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians to the church of Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 4, 1, it says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. And if you go look at that where he says servants, if you look at that word, it means under rower, the very bottom of the boat, somebody that is not worthy to be looked upon. Now, look, I'm not telling you that we should be so meek and lowly that we don't walk in power and understand our identity, but we need to not look at ourselves and think better of ourselves. We need to see ourselves as servants of Christ. And the sad fact about this, and this is what happened to Israel, is they thought too highly of themselves, and so they kept sinning more and more. I'm almost out of time, so jump down to verse 9 with me, and look what it says. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those whom you said, Give me a king and princes? And I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. So the final person that God brings up from their past is King Saul. I like the way the King James 2000 Bible reads for verse 10. I think it's a better translation. I will be your king. Where is any other that may save you in all your cities and your judges of whom you said, give me a king and a prince? And that's what God is really saying is that I always wanted to be your king. But you desired to look to someone besides me, and you wanted your own king. You wanted a human king. So I gave you King Saul in my anger, and in my wrath I took him away. And here's the danger we have, and here's what Israel did. They always looked to someone else first to bail them out before they went to God. I'm going to make this personal. How many times when we get into trouble... Do we turn to other people to help save us before we turn to God first? See, God wants to be our first choice, not our last resort. God wants us to turn to him first. He wants to be the king. He wants to be king of our life. 
That doesn't mean that people can't speak to us through God, but how many times have we turned to other people first for their wisdom, man's wisdom, instead of God's wisdom? And what God is really asking Israel right here is, where will you turn? And sadly, God is going to take away from them all their money, all their wealth, all the things that they have used, that they've turned to, so they only have one person to turn to, and that's God. And look, if we don't turn to God first, he'll do the same thing to us. Now, you may say that's a mean God. No, it's not. It's tough love. And that's what we've been studying through this whole book. God loves us so much that he will go to great lengths to get our attention. He won't just let us go out there. He's like a loving father. And you say, well, if he'll take my wealth away, if he'll take this away. Well, no, we made the decision to chase after that other stuff. We've got to own the decision, but God will take it away so we will turn to him. God is saying that you've turned to idols, you've used your money towards idols. I want to be your king. You asked me for a human king, I gave it to you. I want to be king of your life. Jump down to verse 14 with me, but verses 12 and 13 also talk about the pain that uh, Israel is about to go through, through this judgment, through this exile that they're about to go into. But listen to what he says in verse 14 and 15. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from the death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. The second half of this verse may sound very familiar to you because Paul quoted it where he says, Death, where is your sting? You've probably heard that before. But God is saying right here that you're going to go through some pain, but I will redeem you. I will bring you back. One day you will return to the promised land, but first you must go through exile. He's saying you're going to go through so much pain it's going to seem like death, but you're going to be brought back out. And you know what? We can say the same thing. We go through times and trials that seem almost like we walk through death. David wrote, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. See, David knew where his strength was and who he would turn to. And that's the question today. Who will you turn to? Who will you put your trust in? Will you be like Israel? Will you put your trust in your past? Or who will you turn to? Will you turn to God? Will he be your first resort? Will he be put on the pedestal? Will he be king of your life? Today you may be listening and maybe you're going through some painful time. Maybe you're going through something that seems almost like death or the pain of childbirth something very intense, and you're like, God, where are you? Turn to God. And that's what he's saying right here to Israel. Turn back to me. Turn to me. I will bring you back out of that. I will bring you back into the promised land. And God has that same promise for us today. He will bring us back into the promised land if we'll just turn to him. Let us pray. Dearly Father, we come before you today, Lord, and we thank you for this time again together a time to study your word, Lord, to learn from our past. Lord, sometimes we go through things and we don't remember the bad things, but it's good to remember those two and learn from them. Lord, I thank you for these words that we can take wisdom from them. And Lord, that we can learn that when we're going through the trials of life, that we can say that if we turn to you, if we are your child and we have you, Lord of our life, that you will take care of us. You will restore us. 
Lord, help us to remember that you are the one we always turn to first. Lord, maybe there's one listening today that, you know, you're knocking on their heart. Lord, you're, they've had some pride. They've looked down on folks. I'm not saying they're not a Christian, but maybe they've looked down, that they think they're better because they're not gone through a divorce. Maybe because they go to church every Sunday and other families don't. Whatever it is, Lord, that you would just knock on their heart, make them aware of that sin, Lord, and that they would repent from it. And Lord, if there's one listening that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray today would be the day, Lord, that they would ask you to be Lord of their life. Lord, they would confess with their mouth that they're a sinner and that you went to the cross, you died on the cross, and you rose again, and you did that for them, and that they would take on you as Lord of life. They would confess you before men. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We're going to give you all the honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.